Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I'm here today with entrepreneur Michael Siegel, who is the founder of Deco Created and One Thrive. Deco Created is the industry leader in the home decor subscription box space and has won the award for best home decor subscription box three years in a row. In a super competitive space, Michael is constantly innovating so that he can stay on top. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Aaron. Much appreciated. I would love to start out this interview with learning a little bit more about your early entrepreneur days. So can you tell me you know, any first business that you started off early on? I joined the home decor industry in 96, 97, and kind of tapped into uh, existing business. And along with my partner and I, we have kind of took a, a mom and pop family business and have really changed the entire concept of, we started in the picture framing business and moved that into large scale hotel production business for wall decor and into big box retail over the last 25 years. So I had a little bit of a foundation when I got started, but it was nothing like where we have taken the business to where it is today. And before that, I uh, did the college thing and, and worked in various jobs, always with an eye on learning and improving my skills. I worked on communication skills, always working on marketing and sales. And that was my background and my history. When I got into picture framing, which is really the kind of foundation of the businesses that we have today, really utilized all the skills prior to that and knew that I wanted to have my own business and, you know, have the opportunity to run what we wanted to do. We've been doing that successfully for the last 25 years. So take me back to you and your college days. So you kind of had a hunch that that was what you wanted to do, you know, Coming out of college, when did you think you would start your first business? And, you know, what was your first job that you took right out of college? So well, college was was fun. I had a good time. But I, I always had, you know, dreams of being in marketing. You know, I grew up during times when Bud Light and, and Nike really had its kind of infancy and, and doing really creative stuff. And I, Michael Jordan was, you know, my idol. So all that advertising and sports advertising and just kind of the whole marketing world was really starting to take off. And I saw that. I'm like, that is fun. I want to do that. I want to be in some kind of marketing business. And that's what I studied at school. And I, you know, dug in there and, and did, you know, did really well in school. And then my first job out of college, I blended two things together. I played golf competitively in high school, a little bit in college. And I first job was a the head of marketing and sales for a company that was in the space of teaching or, or working with golf professionals and their students. And we were recording, videotaping, analyzing their golf swings and doing all that. And I loved it because I loved golf and I loved marketing and I loved sales. So my territory was South Florida, and I was able to open up all the top different teaching schools in South Florida. I was 22 years old. I went to 
Doral and Boca Raton Resort and all the big teaching schools. And I was able to work with them and open up all those accounts and really help launch that business. It was a precursor to what you see in a lot of different teaching schools today. And how big was this business that you were going into? Was it kind of a startup vibe? Or? Yeah, it was a startup business. It was a guy with a great idea and a business partner. And they had the guy with the great idea was a doctor. And his great idea was to use technology to help evaluate swing analysis. And, you know, they were in the mid 80s. That's was really, really something that nobody was doing. And it was very intriguing to me. And I love golf. And I loved helping people with golf, playing golf, and I love marketing and sales. So for me, it was like the perfect job coming right out of college, startup environment. I seem to have always ended up in a start, startup environment. And it was it was fantastic, great experience. So how long did you last there? It does it definitely sounds like a dream job being able to do something you love right out of college is doesn't always work out for people. But how long how long were you there and, and what ended up happening with that company? So I was there for about two and a half years. The company ended up going out of business because of what they were working on. It was not the technology itself was a little flawed. And the big golf companies like Callaway and Ping started to get into the space. And the founder just didn't have the kind of the cash flow or, or the tolerance to take it even further. But we did create a lot of groundwork for them. And we did really get a, a very specialized business off the ground. And it was, it was a lot of fun. So was that disheartening for you? And, and were you some sort of minority stakeholder in it at all? No, as a young kid, I didn't have a minority stakeholder. It was a little sad that it happened that way. And yeah, we made a lot of progress. You know, when you don't know the financials behind the scenes, this is a very important lesson, is make sure you, you get in with a company that's got solid financials and, you know, a clear path profitability, which they did not have. But when you're 22, 23 years old, you don't know how to ask those questions. Yeah, and also also important if they're if they're transparent about where they are exactly. So, what did the next few years of your life look like after that? So after that, I actually, kind of jumped into where I'm at today, where it's I got together with a friend and got in with picture framing, and it was his family business, and it was very small, mom and pop, and. You know, they needed someone to do marketing and sales. And I'm like, I can do marketing and sales. <laughs> and we got into that. And, you know, young guy looking to continue the marketing and sales side and, and work towards owning something myself. And that's, that's how I got into that. So take me through that. Take me through how that company has evolved over the years. So what did it look like when you were first getting started there? What was your role? I was doing outside sales and a little bit of marketing. It was a kind of small mom and pop company and it was local production in South Florida, picture frame. Not a huge revenue cash cow at that point. But we, you know, added more marketing, we added more sales channels. We went after the hospitality industry. We went after retail. We opened up a lot of different accounts and slowly but surely started to build the business and the infrastructure. And talk to me, how did you eventually then get into 
the home decor space and deco created, did that spawn off of this company that you were working with or was this an entirely new venture that, that you went off on your own with? No, this was all spawned off of, off of that. That was in the late 90s and then we kind of just progressed that company and that became a company that we started selling bigger and bigger hotels, started doing some properties in Las Vegas and New York, big timeshares, landed. I think one of our first big accounts that we got was Oakwood Corporate Apartments, They're the largest corporate housing company in the United States, and at 16,000 rooms, and they needed probably 40,000 pieces. And we started doing that. And that was kind of our big break. Then we landed Home Depot and we were doing Costco and we were doing various rooms to go and various accounts. Rooms to go is a big furniture company down in Florida, Georgia, and probably the second or third largest furniture chain in the United States behind Ashley and a few other brands. We landed those accounts in the kind of mid 2000s and started to grow those businesses, get in, got into all the big box retailers, 2007, 2008, and really, really grew that business. And that was kind of our eye-opening launching point, awakening internally. I have a business partner, and he, he and I have been doing this together for 25 years. And you know, we've worked together very, very closely and just been passionate about never settling in a space that we're in. So we're always constantly challenging ourselves to create new and different channels of diversification. And it was never more evident than going through 9-11 during that time and how the businesses shut down. We were able to pivot our business because of that. Going through the mortgage meltdown in 2008, we were able to pivot our business. So you always have to create diversity always have to have people around you that are willing to pivot and change. And we've been able to kind of wind our way through all those different things. So at the time, it sounds like your big break was getting into these huge retailers. Were you guys invested early on into e the e-commerce portion of your company or was that only at a later stage? It became a later stage early on. We were still in the world of retail. Wayfair really taken off yet. And Amazon was Amazon, you know, in 2006. It was obviously a very big company, but it wasn't, you know, where it is today. So, you know, for us, it was like, how can we build retail? How can we build retail and diversify there? So that became our big project and acquiring all the different retail customers that we got. So we took one retail customer and then ended up with probably 20 retail customers. And there were the biggest names in the industry, the Coles to the Michaels to the Home Goods, the TJ Maxx's, the Ross's and the Burlington's and all those companies. We went after them, got in the door, and a lot of them. So that was that's kind of phase one of our expansion and growth, 2007, 2008. And then it was... Okay, at that time, we're doing artwork and we're doing mirrors. We're like, well, that's, we can do a lot more than that. So how do we expand our product line? Well, you got to build an infrastructure. If you want to start bringing in new product lines, you have to build out your teams. 
and that led us down the path of building out a product development team, our design teams, our sourcing teams, our quality control teams, our logistic teams. And that really is kind of the evolution from it's pre-2007 and then it's post-2007. And that's really when we took the went all in on retail and, and on product diversification. As a younger company, what was the trick for you to land some of those huge accounts? Because you maybe didn't have the reputation that, that other people had, but how were you able to do that? How did we do that? <laughs> you just walk in a bit like, we had a little help getting in the door. One of, another break that we had was that there was a newspaper article done about our production in our factory in South Florida. And we got like front page billing in the business part of the Sun Sentinel, which is a big paper in the Fort Lauderdale area. And a person that saw that was a sales rep who works with all these big customers. So he came in and said, hey, I want you to, you know, can you do this volume scale with these big companies? And the answer back then was always yes, we can do anything. Even if it wasn't true, the answer was always yes, and then we'll figure it out later, right? That was always our model. So, but that was our big break was an introduction to one of them. And then that was once we were able to land one of them, it opened up the door for all the others. So just to give you an idea of that first meeting, it's, you know, you're sitting there. I was a lot younger than I am today, but you're sitting there with a very experienced buyer who's been trained on how to see through anything and negotiate. These are well-paid people and those big retailers. And you just sit across from them and you, the most important thing, and as I've gone through the process over the years, is just be yourself in these meetings. Really, really be yourself. So I've been honing sales since the time I was 20. Before that, I worked at Foot Locker. I was 16 and I had to sell shoes. You're honing your people skills. You're honing your sales skills. It was just as hard when I was a 22-year-old breaking into the golf industry and walking in to very, very successful teaching professionals who were twice my age and convincing them to try something at the time seemed a little far-fetched. It wasn't that much different than walking into a retailer with a product line that you knew could do well because you knew you had a good team to support you. And then you walk in there and you just be yourself. If you're yourself in these meetings and you are authentic, you will win people over eventually. They're trained to see a lot of BS. So honest and open. That's kind of how we were able to break in with the first one. And once you break in with the first one, then you make the calls to the other ones and you say, oh, I'm in this retailer. They're like, oh, come over here. That's me. And then you use that the next one. I'm in these retailers. Oh, come on in. And you would fly up there and you make your dog and pony show and you talk to them. It's kind of how you break in. You Back then you picked up the phone and you called them. Interesting. And is it tough to get through to the right people, like cold calling back then? Yes, but there's always that lead person at corporate headquarters. And you kind of have to soft speak to them and get to know them. And and then you just get that break and they they pass you through because you're you're a bulldog and you don't stop. It's not that different than LinkedIn. LinkedIn is kind of the new cold calling, right? Yep. 
I think one of the people that works for you did that with me. So it's the same concept, except it's typing. You have to have the same cadence. You make the connection. Okay, let's connect. And then, you know, then there's that next LinkedIn message. And then there's the next one. And then there's something that she said that made sense. It's the same thing with whole calling back in a day. You have, and they used to pick up their phones because they didn't have caller ID like they have today. And I don't even think they pick up their phones now because nobody calls them. But they didn't have caller ID, so they were always picking up their phones. So you had like 20 seconds to just give your pitch. And you had to you had to just say in those 20 seconds what it is that you think that they wanted to hear. Yeah, I think there's always going to be some form of that, like a cold outreach mechanism, mm-hmm. whether it's cold calling LinkedIn or or whatever it turns into in the future. And I think that the principles behind it will stay the same. I'd love to learn when you guys started to transition into e-commerce. Sure. 2013. So we're successfully working with retailers. We're about five or six years in. We've dabbled a little bit with inventory, but we tried to keep a inventory free business. And so basically you're producing on demand. You walk in, you sell a collection, they give you a purchase order, you produce. It's very clean for your books and for your financials. It's hard to scale that, but it's easy to manage your inventory because you have not. <laughs> it's easy to manage your cash flow because your cash is, you know, you get a purchase order, you finance that, or you have your own bank finance that. And easy but you can't scale that business but 2013 we are seeing a a little bit of wayfair start to take off and obviously amazon's huge and technology is getting better it's easy was easy early on to sell on amazon like phones and batteries and technology that people are used to seeing and what took a little bit later to get better was the technology behind showing detailed product like artwork, mirrors, furniture. That took a, that was kind of the last huge business to business, business channel to enter into e-commerce. Very easy to sell stuff with a lifestyle picture wasn't that important. So as the technology got better and you didn't see just a one picture of an item, you saw like seven in the listing. And, you know, now today there's video and 360-degree spin-arounds and all that stuff. Back then, you had to have the right photography, and people were still going to all the big stores and all the big furniture stores to buy a lot of their stuff. But 2013, we're like, we, we got to do this. We were always looking for the next thing. It's really important. What is the next thing that's going to help you grow, and in a lot of cases, not just grow, help you survive and navigate through, you know, these roadblocks that keep coming up, whether it's a crisis, it's a pandemic, it's a mortgage meltdown, it's a terrorist attack. If you're not thinking about the next thing, you're going to get swallowed up by that thing. So how did that work early on? Was it similar to your current offering? Did you go straight towards the subscription box? Or what was it exactly that you were selling? 
So the subscription box didn't get started until a little bit later. So what that was is it was straight up product offering, inventory, our product line. And, you know, it's a, a different business name. It's called Stratton. And that is really the kind of the parent legacy company that helped us start the subscription box. So we start with that 2013. We get all of our accounts set up, hire somebody. In 2014, we started listing products on Wayfair, on Amazon, and a lot of different websites like Kohl's.com and Target and anybody else that would take our product. And that's called dropship and we were able to build up a line I started 50 items i went to 100 items i went to 200 items 500 800 and kept growing the business and adding new SKUs. but it was you know trial and error you try 10 SKUs and two don't work you try 50 SKUs. you got to learn what people want you got to learn the pricing you want to make sure your gross profits are good you want to make sure your financials are good and profitability of it. So that started really started going 2014, 2015. All right, we're seeing a lot of success. We're opening up a warehouse in California, opening up a bigger warehouse in Florida. We opened had already opened a warehouse over in Asia. We started adding people in product development and sourcing more people, more people, more products, more sourcing, more trips overseas, more relationship building with our current customers, our new customers in e-commerce. It really started to blossom 2015 and 2016. And the transition, so we're, we're, we're three years in, building up a nice business. Our splits are getting healthy, where it was 100% retail. Started to get to like 65, 35 retail to e-commerce. And we're like, okay, we can... You always want to go to bed at the end of the day and say, okay, we're diversified. Not one company is more than X percent of our business. And before that, we were like nervous. <laughs> always working really hard and getting nervous about a customer dominating your position. And so the transition in 2016, 2017, we're growing that business. And we noticed a lot of, we have a lot of, it's a diversified group of people that work for us. And we noticed that they were starting to get into subscription boxes personally. They're like, oh, Stitch Fix. Oh, this one. Oh, that one. And, you know, I think there was one day we were sitting in the showroom. It's a bunch of us. And we're like, I don't know who brought it up, but and then my partner was talking about it. And we're like, yeah, we could do this. We could do this for home decor. And that's when we launched or started thinking about DecoCrate. And did you immediately kind of try to transition everyone onto that subscription box? And, and was there like, did you ever think that there might be pushback from people who, who wanted to choose everything as opposed to have you guys choose it? So our customer base was at the time, and it's still a lot, is, is corporations. So there's no transitioning of any of our customers over to okay. the subscription box. And actually the customers that we sell to, you know, a lot of that businesses are really Wafer's customer and Amazon customer. So you can't solicit them. Mm -hmm. 
yourself. They're the ones who are selling everything for you and you're fulfilling, you're on their websites, they own the customer. It kind of, there's a bigger picture here when I say own the customer, they own the customer. Amazon owns their customer. They own their information. They own their ability to sell them other things. We saw that as an opportunity to own our own group of customers, ourselves, and have a direct-to-consumer product line. So you couldn't transition it. Anybody had to start from scratch. So we started with a box. And you know, to the second point is the customization of the box is a little trickier. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why in a second. You know, we're pretty vertically integrated in what and how we manufacture and how we source our product lines and all that stuff. The customization part for decor is a little bit trickier than let's say smaller items that you can just throw into a box like clothing or lipstick or makeup like FabFitFun or Epsi or Birchbox and all those companies that do that. They they fulfill in a certain way. We're vertically integrated and our challenge was to keep a price point that was value-oriented that people would say, I got to have that. And the best way to do it was to basically make the box whole the way we have. What we do with the pieces and what we do with our other product lines that we've added on and built creates that flexibility and customization. But the product of the box is as neutral as possible so it can fit you know, broad base of customers. It's tried and tested, focused fruit, we do all that stuff that leads into a box that we actually make for the season. And how hard was it for you to transition to a direct-to-consumer business? And what were you doing to market it at first? We started with taking the concept and segmenting a few people that worked for the legacy company and saying, okay, it really was grassroots effort there wasn't a whole lot of we didn't hire people from outside we said okay we're, we're a pretty loyal company we said okay let who in our team can we say okay you're going to work half the day on this and then half the day on the subscription box and we parsed out a few people four or five people there were a lot of people that had their hands involved with name creation logo creation design we had enough talent within the operation to do graphic design, product development, sourcing, packaging. So we didn't have to go out and spend a huge amount of money bringing in outside people. And really, our team at the time was so into it. We're like, let's do. We can do this. You know, if if you have a group of people that are really into it, versus hiring a group of people who are or experience, but don't care about it. You're going to do better with the group of people that is really into it. And they were into it and everybody was into it. And we dedicated, we started with a day a week, two days a week. And we started building out what the product would look like. We got, we did our own focus groups. And we brought in these other boxes. What do they do well? What don't they do well? You know, we bought all these subscription boxes and tore them apart and said, Okay, we can do better than this. We can create a booklet and we can do like you're opening up a present. We can do all these different things. 
And, you know, we came up with a great box at the very beginning. But like to your point, if you build it, will they come? It's like that whole field of dreams thing. We built this box, this first box in fall 2018. It was a great box. And we started with friends and family. Those were our first customers. And they really weren't customers because we were not going to make them pay for something because we needed their help. And at that point, so this is 2018. You've got myself, my partner, and a whole bunch of people that really don't know anything about digital marketing. But, you know, we do know. We know about product. We know about branding. We know about packaging. We know about doing things the right way. That's what we know. But we didn't know a damn thing about digital marketing in 2018. So what did you do to speed up that learning curve there? Like, how did you grow it so quickly from, from 2018, knowing nothing to, to where you are, you know, three years later? A lot of work. And we had some people on the team that were willing to play multiple roles in multiple positions. So you had a person on the team that was doing all the branding, the logo, and a lot of people had their hands in, involved in creating the product. I think what has really helped us the most is that the product and the brand is amazing. And I think that that was able to overcome our shortcomings on what the digital marketing side. You ever, you ever see a product that's like, eh, but their marketing is amazing? Well, we, I think we were, the, we, were, we were the reverse. Our product was amazing. Our branding was amazing. Our name was amazing. Our concept was amazing. Marketing was like, eh. So you got to have a great product first and a great foundation, great people working at your company. So what did we do to overcome it? We ended up hiring outside people who knew more about digital marketing than us, who knew about website design and knew about social media and marketing and email and influencer. And we started to slowly trial and error, hire some more people, bring in on some outside vendors. But the product and the branding for us has been the key. And because we're vertically integrated, it's we're very, very, we have a lot of pricing standpoint. I think it helps us as well. The value standpoint, it helps us really well. You know, what we've learned over the last three years is the whole marketing of it, which has really helped us take off. But the foundation is the branding, the product, and the people that work there. So before I get more into like marketing, how you spread it, I want to know when you're developing the product, how much of that is looking at your competitors, seeing how you can differentiate yourself or do it better versus looking at yourself and just saying, you know, how can I make this the best possible product? We look more at ourselves. Now we have a whole team and they are, they're also looking at competitors. They're also looking at the marketplace. We are able to tap into, because our legacy company Stratton is very, very expanded from a product development team, design team, sourcing multiple countries all over the world, we are able to kind of stay up on all the trends and all the 
different product lines and all of that stuff. And we put a lot of time and effort into staying ahead. And a lot of products we end up putting out there, we get a lot of comments in our social community and all that stuff that we're ahead of some of the big retailers in what we put out there. And that's, you know, that has a lot to do with our team. They have, they stay ahead of the trends. They're always researching. They're always staying on top of things. And I give them a lot of credit. There is look at our competition. There are other boxes. I mean, there's a box for everything now. Four years ago, there were a lot less boxes. So, yeah, you have to keep an eye on the competition. We would be silly not to pay attention to what they're doing. Makes sense. And, you know, you keep mentioning your team. And it sounds like, you know, you've been able to hire a lot of great people. I'd love to know more about what, what you look for there. And how do you decide whether you want to do it internally or, or bring in an outside vendor for, for certain tasks? Sure. Culture is probably the most important thing. And you learn, you learn by trial and error. You learn by making mistakes. There are some mistakes that you do make. You look at a resume and go, this is a canvas person, but they show up and they don't fit in with the people that you have. I think the most important thing after all of my experience is that people have to collaborate and work well together and they have to be committed to the brand and the company. And other things can be taught, but you can't teach, you can't teach commitment. You can't teach loyalty. You can't teach collaboration with other people. You can't teach having an open mind, but you can teach them about marketing. And they can learn about marketing. And they can learn from outside vendors and outside companies that you work with. You know, that's what we look for internally. And that has also translated, and again, to trial and error on the outside services as well, is you think you, you, you can bring in a big name outside vendor where you think you're going to, because they represent these big name companies, but if you're just another person, another company in their wheel and they're not as dedicated to your brand, it may not work out. You got to have cultural fit and loyalty and dedication to the brand, whether they're inside or, or outside vendors, outside partners, as we like to call them, is super critical. Yeah. And it's obviously a really tough thing to measure beforehand. You know, I've always said like resume really, really can't tell a picture of, of who that person is and how, how hard they'll work for you. Obviously, I want to get to, you know, the influencer section of your company. So I'd love to kind of hear how have you used influencers over the years to grow your company? It's been a very big part of our company. There are product lines that, you know, can get away with not having influencers. But when you're trying to get somebody to commit to a subscription box, when a brand says you should buy it versus an influencer saying that you should check this out, there's a big difference. So influencer is a big part of, has been a big part of our success and our growth. We're always tweaking it and looking at it and trying to, really build out the best group of influencers that we can. And you know, you want to have long-term influencers that help you drive the business. People are used to seeing them 
with your products. You want to create an environment that they want to stay on, that they feel that they're being treated well and that they're part of something special. And that's kind of how we've, the approach we've taken with. So from working, you know, our company works on, on your account and it's obvious that, you know, the influencers really love your product, really love your brand and are super loyal to you, which it sounds like coincides with, you know, everything you've, you've tried to do within your company. Do you feel like that's more because of your products that you've made and how perfect they are for the niche? Or is it more because of the strategy that you've assembled in working and, and recruiting these influencers? I think it's both. I think you have to have a good product, right? You know, you can not fool an influencer, but you can market them incredibly well. And they'll try that first box or first product and you send it to them and it's crap. You only get them one time, right? You can only fool them one time, but it's both. You want to recruit the right people. And that's, you know, as you know, that's getting people is it's a little bit of a needle in a haystack. For sure. To get the right ones, you have to kind of work through it, but you got to have a good product. Then you also have a good company, you know, behind it. There are influencers out there that are, they want to be right. They want to represent a good product. They have their own goals, whether they're influencers that just love getting great product for low cost, or they want to be a part of something special or they're, you know, business savvy and they want to grow their business. There's three, three different groups there. And, you know, the outreach and the marketing and building a, you, know, you want to build a winning team, everything that you do. You know, you and I have had conversations recently about how do we make this an environment for them where they love it, you know, and that's not, you know, it's not just necessarily a financial situation. It's also a, situation of kind of doing the right thing and reducing turnover and rewarding people that are loyal to your company. Yeah, I think you've done a very good job at creating, you know, reward incentives for them. You know, we've talked a lot about how that's how that's going to evolve, but I think that's really important that a lot of people don't think about. They just think, okay, you know, how can we work with a lot of influencers? How can we work with big influencers and pay them? They don't think how is this relationship going to evolve over the next several years? So I think that you guys as a brand have, have done a really good job of doing that. And, and, you know, you have some influencers that are just huge, huge brand ambassadors, which I think every e-commerce company strives for. So we kind of talked you know, a lot about you know, how you built this and a lot of successes and things that you've done. I'd love to hear that throughout building your company what are some mistakes you made throughout the process and you know maybe what are some things that you would have done differently could you do it over again where should we start with all the mistakes <laughs> well, let's start with deco credit i think early on the not understanding the digital marketing and trying to learn through trial and error early early on was a mistake i think there was some wasted money early on and wasted market share by trying to learn yourself on things that are there are plenty of professionals out there like yourself that can make the learning curve a lot quicker i think that that's a couple of mistakes 
early on with decocrated is just on the spend on necessarily influence. It could be on any of the marketing that we did. We were trying to learn it ourselves. I think that is a mistake that in hindsight builds a lot of character, but we could be, we could have sped up the learning curve and saved a little bit of money early on. Yeah. But I think, you know, on the flip side, at least, you know, you guys were able to learn a lot and maybe that helped you with, you know, when you did hire people understanding, you know, what to look for and how to approach that and, and the strategy involved there. I'd love to learn where do you envision the future of Deco created and, and maybe you can give me like one year, five year, 10 year timeline. What would you love to be doing? So I'll give you a one year. I'll give you multiple years. I see a Deco created is one of the top subscription boxes for home decor in the U.S., but I also want it to be a place where it's not just about the box. It's about more than just what's in the box. It's about the, it's about the community. It's about the learning of how to feel good about decorating your own house. And there are so many other things that we are doing that are not just the box. There's all the holiday boxes that we do, but there's also a great community that we have of people that are sharing ideas and sharing their successes that they have in their house. We do a lot of surveys and we know that half of our customer base is they're not great at decorating. So we want to make people feel good about decorating their home. It can create a lot of anxiety for people. There's, sure, there's people that walk into stores and they know how to pick this, 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 and this, and they're done. Or there's people that can afford a high-end decorator and they come in and they take care of everything for you. But our goals are to take the everyday person who is looking for convenience and a little bit of help. Or that person who just loves home decor and is like collecting all kinds of stuff. We want to be the place for them to come for their home decor needs, whether it's the box, all the atom boxes and all the atom boxes that we have planned and expanding our shop. There's over 700 items in our shop right now. And that's not just box. So the value of the membership isn't just the box. It's the whole value of the savings that you can have with all of your home decor. So that's part of the customization that we talk about where, okay, you might not necessarily get to pick exactly what's in your box, but the value of your membership is going to save you so much money over the course of a year, two years, three years, because you're able to pick all these other products that it is by far well worth it. So that's the one to three year goal. It's decorated in the box, decorated outside of the box, decorated in your home. We're doing a lot more in the live episodic stuff where we are helping and educating our YouTube channel. We're putting a lot more time and effort into that. And, you know, getting into, you know, live selling and things like that. We're, we know that that's starting to take off in a big way. So stay tuned. We have a lot of things coming up with decorated and you know, we always say we want to just what's in that box. We're a entire company dedicated to, you know, lifting you up if you don't know how to decorate and you're anxious by it. Cool. I look forward 
to seeing all these evolvements over the years. I want to get to a portion of my podcast that we call the quick fire round. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you questions that, that aren't necessarily related to Deco Created, and I'd like you to do your best to answer them in 30 seconds or less. All right, let's do it. This is fun. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Workout. What kind of workout specifically? Peloton or lifting. What is your favorite purchase of $100 or less? It can be maybe a little more. It can't be a huge purchase, like like a home. I like buying stuff for my wife. Is that weird? Like what? What's it? What's it? What's <laughs> just little gifts, little reminders. We've been married almost twenty five years. Just stuff like that. Like I like buying stuff for my kids. I buy a whole lot for my for myself. <laughs> I guess I'm pretty lame. <laughs> what is your favorite place you've ever been to? I love Colorado. I love skiing. I love hiking, summited a couple of mountains. So anything that's outside, love it. What is your favorite brand that isn't your own, obviously? Love what Amazon does as a company. Amazing. I'm a huge Amazon fan too. If you had to put one line on a billboard, what would it be? About myself or anything? Anything. You you get to put one line on a billboard that people are going to see. What's that line? No, this is a tough one. If it's to be, it's up to me. I learned that a long time ago from somebody who meant to. If it's to be, it's up to me. You ever heard that before? No, but I like it. Yeah. Awesome. Do it, do it right the first time. You ever heard that one? <laughs> that, that one I've heard. <laughs> but I do like the it's to be. If it's to be, it's up to me. I really do like that. I'm sorry, I'm not the coolest guy in the world as far as podcasts and trends and stuff like that. No, it's all good. Well, I think I really appreciate you you coming on today. I think a lot of people listening can learn a lot from your long London adventure from, you know, the golf swing school right out of college to transitioning into home decor and to what you've built with Echo Created today. Thank you so much for taking the time, Michael. You got it, Aaron. Thank you so much, and I do appreciate everything you do, and I know you have a lot of success ahead of you, so thank you. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit InfluenceHunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.